0: John 17, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I have come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Let's pray together. Lord, our prayer is that of, of the psalmist in Psalm 119, that you would establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for you, that you would open our eyes to behold in your word wonderful things, and that we may understand the truth and know the truth, believe it and obey it, that Christ our King may be glorified in and through us. That is our desire. We pray that you would grant that in Christ's name. Amen. We are continuing now with a theme that we started last week, namely this theme of a the subject matter of a people that is given by the Father to the Son for the Son to save. And that's what we started looking at back in verse 6 there, and we finished that last week, and today we're moving on to verses 7 through 10. And this is the the theme that is woven all the way through John chapter 17, this, this Father giving a people to the Son so that the Son may save them for the glory of the triune God. And uh, that is a doctrine that we ought not to be ashamed of. It's all the way through John 17. It's all the way through the Gospel of John. That doctrine of divine election, God's sovereignty and salvation, that He chooses a people and He gives them to His Son to save, that doctrine is not something that Jesus was afraid of. It's not something He ever shied away from. He wasn't embarrassed by it. It He didn't apologize for it. Uh, He was very bold and and straightforward about it. In fact, it is something that He spoke of, of many occasions in John. John 6, John 8, John 10, and John 17 are the passages where He really unfolds that doctrine in all of its glorious detail. And sometimes in the church we are—we don't want to talk about the subject of election because we think that this is unfair, we think that it's unjust for God to do this, and, and we don't understand all the mysteries behind why God has chosen to save some and He has passed over others. Uh, these things are mysterious doctrines to us, and we can only go so far before we hit a fog, as it were, and we simply cannot perceive or see into the counsels of the divine will and the divine activities of God. And so we are always left with a mystery, And that should not bother us, that we cannot fully understand these things, but neither should we shy away from what clearly, what what scripture clearly presents as the truth of divine sovereignty concerning the salvation of God's elect and those whom he has chosen. And as I said, Jesus never was ashamed of this doctrine. He never apologized for it. Um, and yet Christians seem to be embarrassed by it, uh, especially in groups of unbelievers. You'll have pastors and churches that'll say we, we ought not to talk about these things, you know, in mixed company, where there are unbelievers present who hear this, and and just be quiet. We don't want to divide anybody. Uh, we don't want to divide the church. We don't want to upset people's feelings. Don't make people to think that God is unfair or that He's He's selectively giving grace to only some. And yet, on two of the three occasions where Jesus expounded these doctrines in the greatest detail, on two of those three occasions, the context and the audience was predominantly unbelievers. John chapter 6, predominantly unbelievers. And Jesus expounded this doctrine to them and told them of His sovereignty over their salvation and that nobody can come to Him unless the Father who has given those people to the Son draws them to the Son. And what did the unbelievers do? They got up and walked away. They didn't want anything to do with that. In John chapter 8, it was to unbelievers that Jesus spoke of these sovereign things. In John chapter 10, it was to the Pharisees in pointing out to them that they did not believe because they were not of his sheep. In two of the three occasions, out of 6, 10, and 17, in 6 and 10, two of those three occasions, the predominant audience was unbelievers and not believers. And yet Jesus spoke of these things without any embarrassment or without any apology. And as Christians, we need to get used to doing the very same thing. These things, These doctrines should not offend us. They shouldn't embarrass us. These are the things that we should delight in them. We should delight in because I don't believe Jesus was offended by this doctrine. And I don't think he was ashamed of this doctrine. In fact, I think he loved this doctrine. Because this doctrine of the Father giving to him a people for his glory, that doctrine was something that Jesus delighted in because that gift was an expression of the Father's love for him and the Father's love for those people. And that ought to be something that our hearts delight in as well. So, We're looking today at verses 7 to 9, continuing this theme of a people being given by the Father to the Son for the Son to save. And we're going to see in verses 7 through 9 that there are three things that result from this gift of the Father. Three things. First, our faith in the truth, our belief in the truth. Second, our separation from the world. And third, the glory of Christ. The gift of the Father to the Son results in our faith in the truth, our separation from the world, and the glory of Christ. First, the faith in the truth in verses 7 and 8. And it ought not to surprise us that the glory of God is wrapped up into this because we've been seeing since the beginning of verse 1 that all of this pertains to and concerns God's eternal glory. That is what God is pursuing in the salvation of His people is the glory of the triune God. So, first, our faith in the truth, beginning in verses 7 and 8. Now they have come to know that everything you have given Me is from you. For the words which you gave Me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Those two verses describe our relationship to the Word of God, namely to the truth that Christ communicated. Okay, These two verses describe our relationship to the truth and the response to the truth of those whom the Father gave to the Son. Now who is the, uh, verse 7, who is the they that is mentioned there at the beginning of verse 7? Who does that refer to? It is referring predominantly in this context, in this verse, to the eleven who are there hearing Jesus pray this. The twelve disciples minus Judas, who has left. That was to fulfill Scripture, according to verse 12. So he's got the eleven there, and this they refers to the eleven. And he's speaking of these eleven men, and then look at the language that he uses to speak of how they had responded to and received the truth. In verse 7, now they have come to know that everything you've given me is from you. Verse 8, for the words that you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and understood them, and have believed that you sent me. To know, to receive, to understand, and to believe. That is what describes a Christian. Notice that these are primarily words that describe an intellectual component of a truth that is revealed, a truth that is defined and described, and a truth that Christians embrace, receive, know, understand, and believe. And this is what separates believers from unbelievers. It's not the works that we do that distinguish us and earn some salvation as opposed to others. It is not an experience that we have had that gains us salvation as opposed to an experience that others have not had. Christianity is fundamentally a truth revealed to the heart and to the mind. It is a truth that is revealed and understood and received and believed. What distinguished these men was not an experience that they've had. Jesus doesn't describe them that way. He doesn't say, these men who walked the aisle at one of my very first crusades... These men who have checked the box and raised the hand when I said if anybody wants to invite me into their heart. That's not how he describes them. He doesn't describe them in terms of any experience that they have had, but rather he describes them in terms of what they had come to know, what they had come to understand, and what they had come to believe. Because Christianity is not about happenings which are experienced. It's not about feelings that are felt. It is about truth that is to reveal, name, truth that has been revealed. Namely, the truth about God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been revealed. And who understands and receives that truth? Those whom the Father has given to the Son. They come to know and to believe and to understand and receive that truth, and they believe it. It is about truth that has been revealed, which we have believed. That's what distinguishes the elect, as it were, from the non-elect. Those given from those who have not been given. Jesus sometimes taught these same doctrines to unbelievers and believers alike. And what is it that caused the believer to differ from the unbeliever? What is it that caused Peter to hear these teachings and to receive it and to believe it and to embrace it and the Pharisee to not receive it, to reject it and try to kill him instead? What was it that made them to distinguish one from another? Nothing but the grace of God. That the Father had given Peter to Jesus, but he had not given that Pharisee to Jesus. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 26, concerning the Pharisees, you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. It wasn't the believing that made them the sheep. It was the sheep that made them believe. It was because they belonged to him that they believed that is how Jesus explained the unbelief of the crowds in John 6. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. And people walked away when they heard that. They did not come. Why? Jesus' explanation in John 6:35 through 30 uh, through 40 is that they had not been given by the Father to the Son. That is why they walked away. They didn't respond as the sheep. They didn't hear the sheep the shepherd's voice. They didn't come to the shepherd and they didn't receive eternal life. And notice the special mention that Jesus gives to his words and the the quality of his words and the source of his words in verse 7. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from from you. Oh, let me deal with this first. That's kind of an awkward way of saying something, is it not? If I if you give me everything, I say, look, I've come to know that everything you've given me is from you. Obviously, it's from you if you've given it to me, right? It kind of sounds redundant. It's a bit of an awkward translation, but the, the general meaning or the essential meaning is this. These men, these eleven, had come to understand that everything that had been given to Christ had been given to Christ by the Father. And what that meant was, specifically, that he was the divine Messiah, he had been given a kingdom, he had been given a people, he had been given authority over all flesh. The Father had committed all things into the hands of the Son, and the disciples had come to understand this and to believe in him. In other words, Jesus is saying, these men have come to understand that I have been given all things and that all things have been given to me by the Father. In other words, that he is the Messiah and that he was the divine Son. That is a description of their belief at this point. Now look at the attention that Jesus gives to his words. Verse 8. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. The words which you gave me, I have given to them. Speaking to the Father, it was the Father's words that Jesus spoke, and he had delivered this message to the disciples. Now over and over in John we have seen this. I'm only going to give you a couple of examples. We have seen where Jesus describes his words and his teachings not as his own, not as speaking on his own initiative, but only speaking those things that the Father gave him to speak. For instance, in John 7, verse 16, Jesus said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of my own initiative. John 8:28, Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. In John 14, verse 10, Jesus said to his disciples, The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. And then in John 12, verse 49, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And here he is saying the exact same thing again. That all of the words that the Father had given to him, He had delivered these to the disciples, and how did they respond? They came to know these things, they received them, they welcomed his words, they understood what he was saying, and they believed what he had said. And this sets them apart from the fake believers we've seen in the Gospel of John. And we've seen a number of false believers, have we not? In John chapter 2, we saw them. John chapter 6, we saw them. John chapter 8, we saw them. John chapter 10, we saw them. All of these fake believers who made a profession and understood certain things intellectually, and yet they walked away from the truth, and they never embraced the truth. They heard the words, and they made they made verbal professions, and they came after Christ, but for all the wrong reasons, and they were not true believers. So what distinguishes Peter from all of these false believers or John or any one of these other disciples from one of these false believers? Namely, that unlike the false believers, they had received his word, understood it, and believed upon it. And contrast that with the false believers in John chapter 8 when Jesus described them. And he said, you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. And he's emphasizing in John chapter 8, the message that I gave to you, the Pharisees, was the message that the Father has given to me. I don't speak on my own initiative. I don't come up with stuff. I don't make this up. I received this from the Father. And yet you try to kill me. So those who have been given by the Father to the Son, when they heard, (coughs) excuse me, when they heard the Son speak and they heard Him give the words of the Father, they embraced and they welcomed them. When the Pharisees heard Christ speak, they tried to kill Him. Notice the difference response? What is it that makes one man to differ from another? Why is it that when I was sitting, At Coquelin Lake Bible Camp, hearing the Word of God preached and hearing the Gospel presented, I had one of my best friends on one side, another of my best friends on another side, and we all sat there, we all heard the exact same words, and I believed. And to this day, neither of them have believed that same message. Because I'm smarter? You know that's not the case. It's not that at all. Because I've been given by the Father to the Son. Now maybe at some point they will respond to that message and they will give evidence of the fact that they've been given by the Father to the Son as well. But until that happens, I have no reason to believe that they've been given by the Father to the Son. I, I, I don't have my own giftedness or my own, my own mental capacities or the condition of my own heart to thank for those things, but only by the grace of God have I believed and somebody else hasn't. But this is what results when the Father gives a people to the Son. It results in them hearing the Savior's voice. John chapter 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So all who are given will come, because they have been drawn by the Father for that purpose. And all who come, he will not cast any of them away, but he, all who come will behold the Son, and all who behold the Son will believe upon the Son, and all who believe upon the Son receive eternal life, and all who receive eternal life are raised up on the last day. That's the chain of John 6. All whom the Father gives are raised up on the last day, and in the middle of all of that, none are lost. Because he came down from heaven to do the will of the Father, which was to bring to salvation all whom the Father had given to him, and to lose none of them. And so it begins with the Father giving a people to the Son, and it ends with the salvation of every last single individual that was given by the Father to the Son in their eternal salvation. And in John chapter 10, Jesus said, My sheep, they hear my voice. And he's not talking about a still small voice or a whisper or some special revelation or promptings or proddings from God to give us direction in everyday life. My sheep hear my voice, and Jesus there is describing salvation. And they come to me, and I give them eternal life and I know them and they know me and I lose none of them because they are in my hand and I am no one can snatch them out of my hand and no one can snatch them out of the father's hand because I and the father are one that is the security of the sheep and it all comes down to not a decision that we make in time but a decree that God had made before time and if I am to ground our security or my security or my confidence or my assurance or 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 my my uh, well, my assurance, in the person of Jesus in my salvation, if I am to ground that on something, I would rather it be the decree of God in eternity past than the decision of men in time. I would rather my confidence come from the purpose and the plan of a sovereign and gracious and loving God than anything that I have purposed or plans, because my purposes and plans can change on a whim, but His never do. His are eternal, and they must come to pass, because nobody in heaven or on earth can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Or correct the Almighty or give him wisdom or counsel or instruct him in anything? And so this is the ground of our assurance that all in the Father is given to the Son. The result of that, they will know and believe and have faith in the truth. That is how he describes these men. Now look at the second thing that results in the Father giving a people to the Son. The second thing is a distinction and separation from the world. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf. Who's the there again? Well, that would refer to the 11, right? In the immediate context, we're still talking about the 11. But I want you to see something. In verse 20, the scope is broadened from just the 11 to all believers. Look at verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, these 11 alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And that is how you and I have believed, through the word and through the testimony of those 11 men and the Apostle Paul, who wrote the New Testament. And so he is praying in verse 20. He broadens the scope from not just the eleven. He's not just praying for them, not just for these alone, but also for all who will believe, and that includes whom? That includes all of us as well. And all who have believed on Christ since His death and His resurrection. All who have believed on them on Him because of the testimony of these men. And look how all of us are described as those given by the Father to the Son in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also... That is, those who believe on you because of their testimony, that they also be where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. Notice that description. So the men that are given are not just the eleven apostles, but all those whom have believed upon him for salvation. Now, some people try and rescue God from this this apparent unfairness. By a couple of different mechanisms, a couple of different ways of suggesting things. to sort of Because we don't like to suggest that there was this massive humanity and God who could have saved all, but he decided not to and he decided to save only some out of that massive humanity. That seems so unfair to us, right? I always bristle with any objection that begins with that's unfair. Because if we all got what was fair, we would all get hell. That would be fair. That would be just. That would be righteous. That would be right. But fairness and grace are not the same thing. Grace extended to any means that it is discriminating. Grace has to be discriminating since it is unmerited. It would discriminate in its recipient. And for anybody to suggest that if God is going to show grace to one, He must show it to all equally in the exact same way, that denies the definition of grace. Grace is unmerited. And once you begin to say that God is obligated to show grace to any creature in any way, it's no longer grace. Because as long as God is obligated to show it, it's not grace. The definition of grace is it's unmerited or unobligated favor. And so God is free to show grace and to give grace to any creature that he chooses upon any grounds that he chooses to any end that he chooses. Because he is completely free to save all who will come to him. He is completely free to save any whom he chooses for his own eternal glory. But there are some who want to come up with ways to sort of rescue God from this conundrum of unfairness. Let me give you a couple of suggestions. Some have suggested that the giving here of the Father to the Son, that this giving only refers to the eleven, and that it only refers to the office of apostleship. It only refers to the eleven, it only refers to the office of apostleship. Now, it can't only refer to the eleven, for reasons I'm going to give you in just a second, but we just read in verse 24 that those, all those who also believe upon him through the testimony of the eleven, those two are given by the Father to the Son. And some say that it only refers to apostleship. Well, if I were to offer a rejoinder to that, it would be this. That's unfair. That Paul should be given the gift of performing miracles and be called an apostle, and that I shouldn't be given the gift of apostleship? I mean, if God's grace is going to give that gift to these 11 men, it seems unfair that he wouldn't give me the same abilities and powers and recognition that he gave to the apostle Paul. So that seems unfair. But it should be obvious to us from the testimony of chapter 6 and chapter 10 and chapter 17 that those who are given refers to more than just the 11. It refers to all who will believe because that's what Jesus says in John 6. All who are given eventually, remember the whole process I went through just a few moments ago, they will be raised up to eternal life and none of them will be lost. Another way that people suggest that this, um, to try and rescue God from this unfairness is to say, well, if it doesn't refer to only the 11, then it refers to all men. Everybody, all of humanity, every person who has ever lived, man, woman, and child, preborn child who dies before, uh, they're ever born, everybody who lives to the age of everybody who has ever lived from Adam till today and beyond today, every last person has all been given to the Son for the Son to save. And so then they would have to say that the Son came into the world with the intention of trying to save all of them because That is what he came to do, to give eternal life to those whom the Father had given to him. So he tried to save all of them, and he offered a sacrifice on the cross to pay the debt for all men, every person who has ever lived, every last sin ever committed by everybody, that he did that, and he paid that that price. And then desperately for the last 2,000 years, because he has a a they-shaped hole in his heart, he is trying to get all of them to believe, but lo and behold, not all of them will believe. Many of them, in fact, most of them who walk the broad road will in fact be lost. So if you suggest that God gave, the Father gave to the Son, all of humanity to save, since the fact that most of them, in fact, will not be saved, what would we conclude from that? Did Jesus succeed in doing what the Father sent him to do? Or did Jesus fail to do what the Father sent him to do? He is mostly, then, a failure. If he failed to do everything that the Father sent him to do. I don't believe Jesus is mostly a failure. I believe he has and will perfectly save everybody that the Father gave to him. Every last one. So if you believe that the Father gave all of humanity to the Son, then you are left with two conclusions. Jesus is a pretty big failure who will be disappointed for most of eternity that he did all of this work and so few actually took advantage of it. Or you have to conclude that all men will be saved and none will be lost and perish in eternal hell. The one makes Jesus a failure. The second makes Jesus a liar. because he said, there is an eternal hell. So what are we left to conclude? That there is a group of people whom the Father loved, and he gave them to the Son to save. And we ought to delight in that. The result of that being that that separates and distinguishes us from the world. You'll notice in verse 9 that he says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. So even in this passage, there is a distinction made between those for whom he is asking this and those who belong to the world. And in fact, in every passage where this language of the Father giving a people to the Son, in John 6 and John 10 and John 17, this distinction is made. There is those There are those who belong to the world and there are those who belong to him. In John 10, it is in the language of those, who, uh, those whom are his sheep and those who are not his sheep. In John 6, it is the language of those whom the Father has given who believe and those who do not believe. This distinction is always made that yes, the Father has given a people to a Son, but it's not everybody. It is, a, it is a limited group of people. It is a small group of people and it is distinct from the world. If the Father gave everybody to the Son, then you know what Jesus is praying here? If the Father gave all of humanity, every last person to the Son, do you know what He's praying? He's praying, Father, I pray for those whom You've given to Me, these, but I'm not praying for those who don't exist, and who are actually in a category that doesn't exist. So this category of people, those given to me, I'm praying for, but this group over here that has nobody in it, I'm not praying for that group. But that's not what he's doing, is he? He knows who is his, and he's praying specifically for them. He is interceding for his people, and he says to the Father, I'm not talking about the world. The Father knew this. I'm not talking about the world. Those who are not mine, I'm not praying for them, not asking on their behalf, but these things he is specifically asking on behalf of his people, whom the Father had given to him. Our our separation from the world, I want you to understand this, our separation from the world is grounded on this reality. When scripture says to us, come out from among them and touch not the unclean unclean thing, and to love not the world of the things in the world, which we read at the beginning of our service. And when scripture says to us that we ought to remain unspotted and unpolluted by the world, and to touch not those things and to be separate from them, that doctrine of separation comes Right out of passages like this, where there is this distinction made between those who belong to God and those who do not belong to God. Even the word church, the Greek word church, the ekklesia, means the called out ones. Those who have been called out and separated from the world. And so when we distance ourselves from the world and the world system, and we don't love the world, and we don't behave like the world, we are in fact affirming this very doctrine that we do not belong to the world because we are separate and distinct. And that is why the world hates us. Because we won't join in with their evil deeds. And so they attack us and they hate us and they don't want anything to do with us. Why? Because we won't embrace everything that they embrace. And when we distinct ourselves, distinguish ourselves from them and make a distinction between the world and those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ in our doctrine, in our behavior, in our practice, in our way of thinking, it infuriates the world. But in fact, it affirms also this very doctrine that we belong to a people called out as a special possession of the Lord our God. A holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own special possession. And so I would challenge you with this. In your day to day thinking, go back to this doctrine constantly. When you're making decisions, when you're living your life, ask yourself, am I doing, and am I in doing this? Distinguishing myself from the world, or am I acting like a worldling? When I act like a worldling, I deny this truth. When I distinguish myself from the world and do something distinct from them and different from them and behave in a way different than the world, I am in fact affirming this very thing that Christ says is true of me, that I've been chosen out of the world and given to the Son to save. So that distinguishes us from the world. The giving of the Father to the Son results in our faith and belief in the truth and our separation from and distinction from the world. Now, if it is true that the Father has given a group of people to the Son and that this is not all of humanity, then what does that mean for our gospel proclamation? When we proclaim the gospel and offer salvation to humanity, should we limit it and say, well, I I think that Mel is obviously one of the elect and one of the chosen ones. He's been given so I can proclaim the gospel to him. We can't know that, can we? So what does this mean then for our gospel proclamation? It means that we proclaim the gospel as far and wide and indiscriminately as we possibly can. That's what it means. You and I are not to distinguish in our sharing of the gospel in these categories that we're now looking at here we just simply have to proclaim the gospel to all men and say to sinners if you will come to christ you will find at the father's banquet table that there is a seat for you if you will come to christ you will find that his atonement on the cross is sufficient to pay the penalty for your sins and if you will come to christ you will find that he is gracious he will forgive you he offers you eternal life he will make you his child he will adopt you as his own he will love you and embrace you and secure your salvation everlastingly that is his promise And he promises that to you today. And so the command of God, if you are an unbeliever, is to repent of your sin, to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will find that, guess what? When you turn to Christ, there is room for you at his banquet table. But what is our responsibility? To proclaim the gospel broadly and indiscriminately as we possibly can to every creature without making these distinctions. So there is no connection between the truth that we are describing here and the scope of our gospel proclamation. Our scope is indiscriminate and broad, but the truths that are being expressed here are very narrow and distinct uh, for that purpose of of confirming in us and assuring us of the Father's purposes of salvation concerning his people, his people. So faith in the truth, separation from the world, and the third one is the glory of Christ. And by the way, before we get into the glory of Christ, I'm just going to remind, I'm just going to give you kind of a heads up about something. This last week, I sat down and I looked in my concordance for all of the references to gave or given or uh, give um, in the Gospel of John. I would commend to you a study. If you want something that's fascinating and enjoyable, look up those three words, gave, given, and give in the Gospel of John. Get rid of, well, not get rid of, but I mean, for the sake of your study, don't pay attention to the words that talk about you know, Peter giving a boat to John or or however that is, but just pay attention to the verses that describe the Father giving something to the Son in the Gospel of John. Give, gave, or given that describe the Father giving something to the Son. That's a fascinating study. I just sat down and wrote out all the verses. I tell you, I loved it. It was the best part of my whole week this last week. Best part. I found out that the Father gave to the Son all things, authority over all flesh, power over life, eternal life, the power over the grave, the ability to give life to whomever He wishes. Um... And a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, that's not all of them, right? But otherwise, there's a lot more that you're just going to have to go into yourself. What a fascinating study. So faith in the truth, separation from the world, and third, the glory of Christ. And this is the aim of everything. It's the aim of everything in the passage. It's the aim of everything that God does for the glory of his own name by glorifying the Son. So verse 10, all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. He's speaking there of people. Everybody who belongs to the Father, everything that belongs to the Father also belongs to the Son. Verse 10, all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. You and I are the people of God and we are safe and we are secure and we are in that group by virtue of two actions. Number one, that the Father gave, uh, called us to himself, chose us for himself, so we are his by virtue of that. And we belong to God by virtue of the fact that the Father gave us to the Son. So there are two realities there in that verse. The Father called us or or chose us for himself, and then he gave us to the Son. So we belong to God by virtue of those two actions. And we belong to God, and that is where our security rests, and that is where our assurance must rest also, not in the decisions of men, but in the purpose and plan of God. And Jesus says something in that tenth verse, and I don't want you to miss it. It is one of these statements that refers to his union with the Father and identifies him as deity When Jesus says in verse 10, all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them, what type of a being can say that everything that belongs to God is theirs as well? There's only one person who has ever lived that can say that. Martin Luther highlighted the the importance of this statement in his commentary, and he writes this, everyone may say this, that all we have is God's. But this is much greater, that Jesus turns it around and says, All that is thine is mine. This no creature is able to say before God, The word all that is thine is mine. That leaves nothing whatsoever excluded. Are all things his? Then the eternal deity is also his. Otherwise he could not and dared not use the word at all. End quote. Now what he is saying is, You and I can say that everything we have belongs to God, but we can never say that everything God has belongs to us. Because there are things that are uniquely God's, his deity, His nature, His character, His his incommunicable attributes that belong to Him and to Him alone. And we can't lay claim to that. But this is exactly what Jesus is laying claim to. There is nothing that is the Father's that is not His. If Jesus Christ is not God, then that statement makes Him a madman to think that. You and I can never say that. But Christ can say that. That all that is belongs to the Father belongs also to Him. And this is why I have the... Absolute and utmost confidence and security in the Lord Jesus Christ because I know for certain that he will complete what he has begun in my life. He will secure me everlastingly because the Savior that I worship and the Savior that I trust is a divine Savior. He's not a mere man. He's not just a rabbi wandering around the countryside teaching these incredible things. He is God in human flesh, and he is worthy of our trust and our confidence and our obedience. He is worthy of our faith. And our trust. Why? Because he is the Savior divine. How do I know that he will accomplish everything that concerns me? How do I know that he is able to save everlastingly all who come to him on the basis of faith? I know this because he is God in human flesh. And so he is trustworthy. And there is nothing that can stop him because he has been given authority over all things and all flesh so that he may give eternal life to those whom the Father has given to him. That's back in verse 2. So I ask you today, have you trusted in this Savior, this unique Savior? Do you own him as your own? Do you believe in him savingly? Have you been born again? If the answer to that is no, then I would say to you, dear sinner, loved one, if you reject the truth, you reject truth only to your everlasting destruction and you have no one to blame but yourself because you willfully suppress the truth and unrighteousness and you violated the law of God and you demonstrate your rebellion against him each and every day that passes that you do not bow the knee to the sovereign king of heaven and own him as savior and lord. And when he pours out his wrath on you in everlasting conscious torment, you will get what you have wanted and you will get what you deserve. You did not want God in this life and you will not have him in the next life. And if you die in a state of of ungraced and uh, unredeemedness, you will spend eternity gnashing your teeth and paying for your sin yourself. But there is good news. If you will turn to Christ and repent of your sin and believe upon him and trust in his word, you will find that there is grace sufficient for your salvation, that his atonement and his sacrifice is sufficient to pay the price for your sins. And you will find, if you will repent and believe, that you will be welcome at his table. He will extend that grace to you. Now, if you are a believer here today and you've heard all of these things, then what can we do but praise God? What can we do but praise the Father who chose us for himself and gave us to his Son? And what can we do but praise the eternal Son who came into this world to pay the price for our sin and to die for us on a cross and to save us everlastingly and secure us? And what can we do but praise the Holy Spirit for his gracious gift of regenerating us and opening our eyes and drawing us to the Savior so that we might behold and believe upon him? All we can offer to him is praise for these great and grand doctrines. And so that is what we do. Let's bow our heads. We praise you, God, for your goodness to us. We. We ponder these things and we admit before we begin that they are beyond our comprehension and our ability to fully understand, but yet we delight in them and we want to delight in them more and we want to receive joy and have joy in our hearts at the truths that we see in these pages of Scripture. Thank you for a a wonderful Savior, uh, an eternal Savior, a divine Savior who is able to save all who come to Him. It is in that Savior that we trust and, and we with confidence delight in Him. And we pray that you would, by your grace, draw unbelievers to your son, that they may be saved as well, and they may find a welcome seat at your table and a sacrifice that is sufficient to pay the price for their sin. Draw unbelievers to yourself, those who do not know you, who may be here today, that you might be glorified by their repentance from their sin and their belief in the divine Savior who died to forgive them. Thank you for that forgiveness and cleansing from sin. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen.